Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. The last time I was here, I think it was a year ago, um, uh, we looked at the first beatitude, and I'm going to call our attention to the second one, which appears in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And um, as I will be doing with each of the Beatitudes, I ask the question first, who alone is blessed? And in this case, it is they that mourn. And then how are they blessed? They shall be comforted. So looking at who alone is blessed, they that mourn. Um, the Beatitudes, uh, many of them state things in what will appear to us to be a paradox. Um, in this case, blessed, happy are those who mourn. That does not seem to fit together. It seems to be almost self-contradictory that uh, those are happy who mourn. Now, the word mourning here is precisely what we would expect it to be. It's sorrow, it's lamentation at, great, at a great and painful loss. And so the, the question is uh, first provoked in our mind, what do they mourn for? Blessed are those who mourn. What do they mourn for? Well, the brief answer to that is sin. Uh, but we need to open that up a bit and demonstrate the truth of that answer that they mourn because of sin and qualify it to some extent. When God created the world uh, and all that is in the world and all that is in the universe, Genesis 1 tells us that he looked on his creation and all of it was good. In the Garden of Eden, in the world as it was originally created, Adam and Eve knew no mourning. There was no cause for mourning. There was nothing that would even make them anything less than happy. There was nothing to make them sad, nothing to make them miserable. But when Adam sinned, and we sinned in Adam, misery and pain and suffering and sorrow entered the world and touched all of creation. Now, all of mourning, then, is because of sin. Ultimately, in a sense, all mourning is for sin. But I do want to qualify that a bit. Sometimes when we say that, uh, people think that what we mean by that is that everything bad that happens, God is sending specifically in response to some sin. That's not what I mean by the statement at all. You remember that Christ encountered the one man um, and uh, he was um, uh, he, he had an affliction that, that uh, Christ healed him from, but his disciples asked, um, was it this man that sinned or his parents that sinned? In other words, well, he wouldn't have this physical problem if it wasn't for the fact that either he or his parents sinned. And Christ said, no, neither. Neither is the case. He, 
He has this because it will be the opportunity for God's glory to be demonstrated. And so, but we can say that there would be no suffering, no mourning in the world, no cause for mourning if sin had not first entered the world. Now, um, when we're looking at the Beatitudes, we need to remember that what Christ is doing here is he's laying out those characteristics of those who are Christians, for the, of those who are in the kingdom of Christ. And so this might raise a bit of a question, which is all men mourn, right? All, every human being uh, suffers with the, the difficulties of life, with death, disease, um, hardship, and uh, all the effects of sin entering the world. Everyone experiences those. Everyone experiences sorrow because of them. How is it then a unique thing with the Christian that they mourn and they are blessed in their mourning? What's the unique trait here? And um, and I think 2 Corinthians 7.10 that we'll turn to later, not yet, um, but uh, this might help get our minds in the right direction. Paul says there, godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There's very definitely a difference in the sorrow that the believer experiences. So keep that in mind as we proceed. Now, um, when Christ talks about mourning, uh, the mourning of the Christian, um, we could think on multiple levels and multiple directions of that. I'm going to call out three this morning. I've kind of already alluded to a fourth that I'll not spend time with, which is um, mourning and the sorrow that attends just more the general experiences of human suffering in the world. And, um, and the mourning that comes from that is we realize none of that would be if we had not sinned in our father Adam. But let's focus on these three. There is a mourning by the believer as we consider our own sin and its effects, our own sin and its effects. Um, by nature, um, before we are converted, we're fallen sinners that love sin and do not love God. We have a strong appetite for sin. Uh, we desire to indulge ourselves in sin. Now, that is not to say that, an, uh, that a sinner unconverted does not experience any sorrow in sin. The Proverbs say that the way of the sinner is hard. Um, there is much uh, grief to be experienced by even the unregenerate in their sin. Sin never satisfies. It mocks us, and sin disappoints. Not only that, but sin enslaves. And it leaves us with some very great regrets often. But the greatest regret that we as sinners have in our unconverted state 
is that we cannot have our sin and be happy too. That's really what an unconverted sinner most desires, is a world in which he can have, he or she can have sin and be happy in sin. But you see, all of that regret and all of that sorrow that's experienced is not the mourning that Jesus talks about. It's, it's more like a man who murders his wife and then regrets that there's no one to cook his meals, right? It's no real regret for the sin itself. Now, as subjects of the throne of Christ in whom the Spirit of God dwells, Christians are to be in a constant state of mourning for their sin. Again, we're not talking about merely the conviction that attends uh, uh, conversion, uh, repentance and conversion. Um, it is an ongoing thing. We mourn that we have sinned against and offended the God who created us and gives us life and breath and every good thing. And, and the, the ingratitude that sin represents. Uh, we mourn that we have violated the perfect law of God, a law that is, in fact, for our good always, and a law that if we kept it, we would glorify the God who created us, as he is well-deserving of that glory. We mourn because we brought shame and reproach to God, to others, and to ourselves. Often, our sin impacts others and uh, brings shame. We mourn at the loss of righteousness and holiness that was once the crowning glory of man, male and female, created in the image of God. Our sin prevents us from being all that God created us to be. Uh, we mourn at the loss of open-faced fellowship and communion with God, perhaps even with the people of God. We often find that if we are uh, not dealing with sin as we ought, we find our fellowship with God's people impeded in some maybe not so obvious ways, but it is. We mourn our state of sin in which we are helpless before the merciless power of sin. We cannot defeat and overthrow sin ourselves. We can be victorious over sin, in the power and strength of, God, of Christ. Christ has, in fact, broken the reign of sin over us, but we mourn that we are still, that sin is yet so powerful as to so often ensnare us. We mourn that we're such a sinner that even though we've been shown better things and we know better things, we still find ourselves attracted to sin, and we still fall to temptation. Lots of reasons for a child of God to constantly be mourning their sin and their remaining sin and remaining sinfulness. But you see, such mourning produces repentance. It works repentance. And so it is not finally a pointless, and it is not, its effects are not negative. It's in such mourning for our sin, in fact, that we, 
that God works to help us to lose our appetite for sin. Uh, when we face our sin again and again and we see the distastefulness of it, we lose our appetite for it. Sin becomes distasteful and repulsive, and that's a good thing. That's why Christ never sinned, right? He saw sin for what it was. It was distasteful to him. He found no attraction in it. The more we engage in repentance for our sin, the more we come to see sin as Christ saw it. Um, it is, in fact, mourning for our sin that motivates us to take radical steps to deal with sin, to flee even the temptation of it. And, uh, and it's here, it's on this point, really, where the mourning of the Christian for sin is fundamentally different. At this point, I will have you look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where this point is um, developed in a way perhaps unlike any other passage in the, in the Bible. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 12. Paul writes here, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, leading to deliverance, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but our care, that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So this sorrow for sin that is part of godly repentance is painful, but it's good. It's good. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. The second uh, area or direction we could go with this is mourning as we observe the sins of others and the effects of those sins. So we are in this world, we're, we're living our lives, we often interact with others. We may read uh, of people that we do not know in the news and whatnot. We see the sins that they have committed. We see the awful effects of that, the, the shooting just this last week in Maine. Um, and and it, it it rightly produces grief and sorrow in us. I have often thought, but I don't think I have ever come close to entering into what Christ felt as the one who created the world and created it perfect and saw what it was 
in its state of perfection when he was born into this world, walking, living in this world, what he felt. He had no sin of his own, but as he watched others sinning around him and he watched the effects of those sins, what did he feel? What sorrows did he experience? At no, no, uh, at, at this alone. And the more that we progress in sanctification, the greater will be our sensitivity to sin. That's why it would have been so very intense for Christ. Um, the fact that we sin lowers our sensitivity to sin. But the more that we progress in sanctification, the more we will feel it, the more we will experience it, and we'll mourn because of the sins that we see. Now, it's crucial that we understand that the Christian mourning for sin is not out of pridefulness or boastfulness or Phariseeism. It's not that we look on others and we lose touch with who we are. We mourn our own sin. And we know ourselves not to be one bit better than any that we observe. We are contending with the same monster of sin within us. The fact that it has not taken us to the extent it's taken others is no credit to us. And this is where the oft-quoted phrase, there but for the grace of God, I would go. The other thing that uh, this morning as we watch and see the sins of others will not produce, it will not produce a standoffishness. It will not produce a, a determination in ourselves to, to kind of, uh, kind of, compartmentalize that and keep it a dis distance from us. We, we will reach out to sinners. When Jesus is here in this world um, and among sinners, why was he here? It was to save sinners. It was sinners to save. So we mourn the sin of others and with profound sadness, empathy, and yearning that we might do them good by pointing them to the savior of sinners, as one beggar, as somebody put it, one beggar telling another where to find food. I can just take a moment to share with you something that popped into my mind this morning. Yet another little twist on this point. Uh, whatever year it was that we went into Iraq to remove Saddam Hussein and you might remember uh, it began that one night we were going to have this, uh, uh, what was it, shock and awe, I think was the term. It's just stunning bombardment. And, um, and I remember I turned on the TV and this was beginning and, and I was so taken up with all the events that led up to that and the need to deal with Saddam Hussein. And, um, and that was kind of all, all that was on my mind. And, um, and Matthew, our, 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 uh, our third son, he wasn't very big. I don't know. He might have been about 10. And uh, I 
paused and I said, you know, we ought to pray right now. And so I prayed that God would be with the, our soldiers as they carried this out. And, and Matthew prayed. And I was deeply convicted. He began to pray and he fervently prayed for Saddam Hussein. And I was, I thought, I, I didn't, my mind wasn't there. And, uh, and you see, we ought to be able to look, even on sins of others that, that do require response and, and, and justice to be served and things that need to be put an end to, but we ought not to look at it and feel nothing of a mourning for this person, the sin that is so captivated and imprisoned them. Um, so just as uh, another side, let's, uh, uh, let's take it one more direction. Mourning as we suffer the sins of others and their effects. So this is sins of others, but sins of others they have a direct bearing on us. We are impacted by them. They may be sins directly against us. They may be sins maybe not directly against us, but we suffer the consequences of them. And uh, the response of our mourning for that uh, needs to avoid all bitterness, should, should not have any sense of resentment or vindictiveness. Again, those responses are not consistent with a Christian who understands their own sinfulness. But rather, we can lament a number of things. We can lament that they have sinned, even as we have sinned. It's bad enough that we have sinned. Why do they sin as well? We lament the fact that they've not been spared the guilt, the shame, the tragic consequences of the sins that we have suffered at their hand. Uh, we, we mourn the fact that they will be judged by a holy, righteous judge for a sin against us, a wrong done against us. And, and that, we've, we've suffered a wrong as those who have ourselves committed so many sins, it almost seems wrong. Knowing who we are, knowing what we deserve, why should any sin against us be viewed worthy of rebuke and punishment. You see, this is, this is the spirit of Stephen when he cries out, Lord, do not charge them with the sin. Their wrong against me is relatively inconsequential. We need the mind and spirit of Christ who, having no sin of his own, has suffered many sins, many wrongs inflicted, on him by us. And uh, he mourns and grieves at our sins against him. But he does so not for the sake of his pain, but for the sake of our harm by our own hand and sin. Just uh, again, another aside, if you have never read it, I'm sure you can Google it and find it. Read Matthew Henry's reflection on being robbed. Um, it is 
all the reasons he found to be thankful to God in his experience of being uh, robbed. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a severe thing, but uh, it will help point at many of these things. Um, one of them being how thankful he was that he was the one robbed, not the one doing the robbing. Well, so these are the various directions. We could add more to them of the Christians mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, how are they blessed? How, how does this contribute to a state of happiness and of prosperity? And Christ's answer to that is they shall be comforted, or it could be they shall be consoled. Now, uh, when you, if you took a look more at the detail of how those words operate that are used, you would begin to realize that when Christ is talking about this comfort and consolation, it's going to come from God, not from anything within us. But how are we comforted and consoled. Well, the first uh, thing that we need to deal with is for our own selves, we see our own sin, we see the effects of that sin, and we are comforted and consoled because Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save. If it wasn't for that, there would be no comfort, there would be no consolation possible. But when we see that Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save, then we have every reason to be comforted and consoled when our faith rests in him. Now, how, how is that? Why is that? Well, Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for he... The Father made him, Christ the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ suffered all that our sins deserve. He suffered and died on the cross as a sinner, having and bearing all the sins of his people that had been charged to him, laid on him, and he bore the full penalty of those sins. He bore all the agony of those sins. He endured the fullness of hell and all suffering for sin in our place. By the way, this is part of the reason he must suffer physically on the cross, not simply suffer the wrath of God. He must suffer for our sin, even in his body. And all this so that by faith in that one sacrifice of sin, we receive forgiveness and pardon. We stand before God as though we have never sinned. But he provided more than just for our justification. He lived a life of perfect righteousness while in this world he never sinned. He was always filling up the full measure of righteousness, doing all the will of his Father, fulfilling every demand of God's righteous law. And so, in addition to bearing the penalty and the punishment for our sin, he lived and gave 
a righteousness to us that we could not have so that we can stand before God as though we are perfect. But there's more than that. In his death, Jesus secured and guaranteed our salvation, gave to us the gift purchased by his blood, again, the gift of his spirit to be our hope and consolation. The wonder of God himself in the person of the spirit living within us. And he resides in us to convict us of sin, yes, to bring us to repentance, yes, but also to teach us the way of righteousness, to teach us how to obey God. And not just to teach us and say, go try it, but to empower us and enable us to walk in obedience and to be with us in the fight against sin. And we have to fight, we have to war, we have to put sin to death. We have to, we have to swing the sword. But we don't prevail against sin because we're swinging our sword. His sword is a lot bigger than ours. And he's there in the fight with us. And we will be victorious in the end because he's in the fight with us. Sin cannot, sin cannot prevail ultimately over the Christian. Sin would have to defeat Christ first. So this one brother was mentioning, the work that he has begun will continue and be completed till the day of Jesus Christ. So this is one area, one direction that we could go with how we are comforted. We mourn our sin, yes, but we are comforted. We're consoled because of what Christ has done for us in his redemption of us. But yet another direction that we're consoled and comforted even as we mourn sin, and it's because all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now that does say all things things. But I find it very difficult to really emphasize and grasp that word all. It does mean all things. Let's go to the extreme of the all things. Does our sin work together for good? It does. Having repent, confessed and repented and having received forgiveness for our sin, this, even the sins we commit, God uses for good. Let me give you examples. First of all, our sin, our, our, our dealing with sin, our repentance, our forgiveness of sin by the, the blood of Christ teaches me and others also the consequences and results of sin. Psalm 51, the psalmist saying, others are going to learn from the sin I have committed and confessed and been forgiven of. We still do, don't we? Every time we read Psalm 51. Our dealing with sin, the, the, the sin that we have committed and been forgiven of serves as a hindrance and deterrence to sin, both for myself and others. Again, that painful 
experience of repentance serves as a hindrance, and even the consequences of our sin serves as a hindrance and deterrence to sin. Thirdly, our, our sin and our experience with sin ends up showing us the great goodness, mercy, and wisdom of God in forbidding sin. Sin really is bad. When God says, you shall not, it wasn't just because he threw dice and picked something to forbid. He said, you shall not, because it's not good. It demonstrates the justice and mercy of God. This is what the, the Puritans used to refer to as seeing the, the sinfulness of sin, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It shows the greatness of the salvation in Christ, that sin will not have dominion over you. How is that? What a wonder that is. How powerful must be Christ's salvation. And it leads to a greater humility before God. We are probably never sweeter as Christians. And when we have had to deal with sin that even shocked us and left us shaking our heads, how could I do this sin against God? It's in that posture of humility that the Christian is the sweetest. Well, to any that would hear what I'm saying and say, well, then it's no big problem for me to sin, right? The apostle dealt with that. Let us sin that grace may abound. We say with the apostle, God forbid. If that's the attitude, then... You are not one over sin, over which sin has no dominion. You are under the awful bondage of sin. What we're talking about here is children's bread. It's for the people of God who mourn and fight and war against sin. Now, what about sins of others? These work for our good as well. In the kind providence of God, he allows some, he allows us sometimes to suffer more greatly than others. <clears throat> Other times as others sin against us. It's been my experience that there are two great pillars of truth that we must lay hold of in order to resist the the temptation to bitterness and resentment. And that is our instinctive response. But if we are to resist bitterness and resentment when others have done wrong against us, the first thing is that we need to remember that we ourselves have sinned so often in so many ways. But the second is that God is... As one person put it, too loving to be unkind, too wise to make a mistake. He has, in wisdom that we cannot fathom, chosen and permitted others to sin against me, but all carefully measured and calculated to not destroy me, but to ultimately do me good. 
This is what that one hymn is speaking of. And it says, take thou my cup and with it joy or sorrow fill as best to thee may seem. Choose thou my good and ill, not mine, not mine the choice in things or great or small. Be thou my guide, my strength, my wisdom, and my all. And so blessed, happy are they, only they, who mourn, for there is for them comfort and consolation. There is, as one Puritan entitled the book, Honey in the Rock. There's sweetness in the bitter, there's joy even in the morning. Well, just some other applications and then we'll be done. First of all, um, we need to mourn even our lack of mourning. As I spoke to begin with of what the mourning of the Christian should be, um, I would be surprised if you could hear all that and say, I think I mourn as I ought to mourn. Um, we are often not as deeply troubled by our own sin as we ought to be, as, uh, as one has said it, our repentance often needs to be repented of. Um, we have much yet to learn that we might see sin as it really is. Um, because that's really what the remaining sin in us prevents us from doing. We can't see sin as it really is. So it's a lifelong endeavor of every believer that will know more of our own sinfulness and unworthiness in order that the glory of Christ and of his grace and mercy towards sinners, such as we are, might grow all the more brighter in our spirit. I'm not talking about a preoccupation with our sinfulness and unworthiness. It leaves us looking down, not up. Remember what Christ said in response to the self-righteous Pharisee who despised that sinner, as he said, who anointed and caressed his feet. Jesus said, therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And so a right dealing with sin doesn't leave us looking down. It leaves us looking up with even greater love for God and for Christ. Second thing I want to just underscore, Christ alone is the consolation for sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save. Uh, sinners can be truly comforted and truly uh, consoled and, and truly joyful in Christ. But you're not going to find that anywhere else other than Christ. Uh, the, the emptiness, the disappointment, the disillusionment, the misery that is felt in sin, that's, that's not, as we said this morning, because you just haven't figured out how to make it work. That's, that's what sin does. And so there's no use in looking anywhere else. Christ 
out of no obligation came into a lost and miserable world to rescue and deliver sinners from their misery to give them life, real life, to give them comfort, to give them peace. And, uh, and there's nowhere else that you're going to find that. The third and the last point, and I speak to this briefly, um, we need to understand here then that the work of the law that brings us to mourning is in perfect harmony with the work of grace, which provides comfort. Two go together. They're not enemies of one another. They're the best of friends. The law convicts and brings mourning. Grace brings the comfort. The problem comes if we look to the law for the comfort. You're not going to find that there. But if you just go to grace and you never feel the mourning that the law brings, you'll never appreciate and you probably have little interest in the grace that brings comfort. You gotta, you gotta know what your need is to appreciate what Christ has done to answer that need. As we spoke of so much this morning. Again, the problem comes when we look to the law for the wrong thing. The the Puritans often get a bad rap on so many things, right? They weren't perfect, and they had their issues. But they often get credited with wrong and problems that just are not true. One of the things I continue to be amazed at, the more and more and more I read of the Puritans, is how concerned they were with the application of the law. They believed that it was crucial. And they believed that it was good. But they also believed how important it was that when the law has been brought to bear on the conscience, that very quickly we bring grace to the conscience as well. And I just offer this up too as a practical thing in child training. Your children hear a lot of law from you. That's part of child training. Don't forget grace. Don't forget grace. It's one of the things that can discourage, right? If, if I am not, it's right and it's necessary to bring law to bear. Make sure that grace is right along behind it. Give them the hope of the gospel. Yeah, but they're so young. That's okay. Words they can understand. Always be bringing grace to bear. Because it's the power, the power to defeat sin is in the grace. We sometimes think if we get convicted really, really bad, we'll get over, we'll stop sinning. No. You can be convicted to the ultimate extent. It's only grace that enables you to put away sin. Nothing, nothing else. All right, let's pray.
our dear Heavenly Father, um, the Beatitudes are so rich and then they, they're so they're so um, impactful precisely because they say things that on the surface seem to be paradoxical. And yet this is the mystery of the kingdom. It's the mystery of the gospel. That things like that if we save our lives, we lose it, lose them. If we lose our lives, we, we save them. And so our God, we pray that while we have, while we live in a world that is bent on feeling no shame, feeling no grief, we'll understand there is grief and shame that we ought to feel and that will produce good as we see things as they really are and as we look to the one who came and suffered for us that we might know comfort and consolation and peace and joy even in the midst of a sinful world. Help us, our God, as we go into this coming week that we might live as those who do mourn those things that we see on every hand that remind us sin destroys. Sin extracts a high price, but also as those who know the one who is the savior of sinners and who gives that spirit of comfort and consolation to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.